Well, good morning, church family. I hope we're doing good uh, today. It's so good to see you. I know that uh, many of you look a lot heavier than you did last weekend. Um, take that as a compliment, right? Uh, but, but listen, I, I know that you had a good Thanksgiving. Most of you probably ate too much, uh, like myself. I know that's certainly something I did, but here's the good news. I'm going to help you shed a little pounds today, okay? I'm going to help you sweat maybe a little. Uh, some of you are going to sweat a lot because uh, we are going to be talking about the dangers of sexual sin. And I know that this is a topic uh, that's so appropriate, you know, to put right after Thanksgiving, right? Um, there's really no convenient time to talk about this. Uh, but as we've been navigating through the life of David, it just so happened uh, that this weekend was the weekend that we were going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, so we just kind of took the punches that came, and we decided to keep that uh, where it was listed, and uh, we're going to be talking about that actually today. So I hope this will be encouraging to many of you, uh, but for some of you, I hope that it will be exposing, exposing in a way that you're able to expose your sin before God and get that right if this be something that you continuously are tempted by. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, this is probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. Many of you um, in the church or even outside the church are familiar with this particular text of Scripture found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We've been walking through a series called The Broken King. And today you're going to see why this king is really broken. Um, we've been walking through the life of David. We're coming to an end of this study together. And we're going to enter into a new series called The Perfect King. And you're going to see that the broken king really just points us to the perfect king, and that is the king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we're going to be celebrating him as the Christmas season approaches. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel is the 10th book of the Old Testament, so if you're having difficulty finding that, maybe that will help you. Listen, there are few passages in all of the Bible um, that are as relevant as this particular text of Scripture. Um, when I say that are as relevant as this particular text, listen, you're going to be faced with the reality of how brutally sinful you are this morning. But my goal is not to let you leave feeling like you have been completely deflated and debilitated by the sin that's in you. All right, I want to point you to Jesus who came and did everything necessary to atone and pay for that sin. So I pray that when you leave today, you don't feel beat up and condemned, that instead you feel built up and ready to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, with each passing day, though, more and more men and more and more women are falling prey to sexual temptation. That's why I feel like we need to approach this topic this morning. And I'm going to do my very best because, in all honesty, I've thought through planning this sermon uh, that kids were going to be in here with us. So I've tried to to the best of my ability to make this age appropriate, um, but we did decide to do the parental advisory just in case you weren't ready to have this conversation with your kids yet. Okay, now, but I do want you to hear this. I think you need to as a parent. Um, today, the average age of a kid looking at pornography is 11 years old. 11 years old. 50% of kids entering high school and 70% of high school seniors have already indulged in sexual activity. Moms, dads, you and I cannot continue to live in oblivion. We cannot continue to act like this is something that's not happening up under our own roofs. We have to get serious about what's going on with our children and fight for their hearts. You're going to see 
Uh, that, that's kind of what this story is all about. If you remember the story of David, David was a shepherd boy. David was forgotten by his own mom and his own dad. David was forgotten by, by his own siblings. You see the text throughout second and first and second Samuel. David was thrown into a field to tend to his father's sheep. But while he was out in that field, God taught David an invaluable lesson. That lesson being how to trust God. I mean, with his own bare hands, he had to fend off lions and bears who were attacking the sheep. That's what, that's what David was doing in the field. But also while he was in the field, he learned the importance of communing with God. He had no one else to talk to. Right? I mean, all he's going to get back if he talks to the sheep is bad, right? And you don't want to do that. So he's talking to God. He's communing with God. He's pinning his thoughts and opinions to God. And, in, in the, in, and through the process of doing that, you and I have the book of the Psalms today. Many of those Psalms were written by David himself. In fact, these Psalms were sung in worship in church history as songs that were reflecting praise and worship to God. So this is who David is. David was a fighter. David was a warrior. David learned this while being in the field tending the sheep. Later, you might remember, David's dad told David, I want you to go take one of your brothers a Lunchable, right? Remember talking about this story. And David goes to this battle that's happening where his brother is, and on one hill is the Philistines. Their whole army's lined up, ready, ready to go to war. On the other hill is the Israelites. This is God's people. They're lined up, ready to go to war. But in the middle of this valley is a guy by the name of Goliath. You've heard of Goliath. And Goliath is just sitting there and he's taunting the people of God, daring anybody to come and to fight him. Well, he was intimidating all of God's people. But this runt, David, who shows up on the scene to bring his brother, really, a lunch, he hears these taunts that Goliath is offering. And David thinks, well, I mean, I fight lions and bears. Why not fight this guy? So he goes to King Saul and says, let me go fight the giant Goliath. And King Saul thinks that's absolutely hysterical. Who are you to go fight on behalf of God's people and, and defeat this giant Goliath? Like, he thinks that's hysterical. That's not going to happen. Well, David insists, and eventually David is able to go fight the giant Goliath, and it just took one stone to Goliath's forehead, and he had dealt with Israel's greatest problem, Goliath. So what happens when he comes back into the city? They're heralding him as king like they are, they are praising him. All the women and all the men and all the kids are coming to the streets and they're just honoring David. They're, they're putting him on his shoulders and, and hailing him as, as their hero. Well, this infuriates King Saul. King Saul gets jealous. He doesn't want to share his glory with anyone else, certainly not this runt that he didn't want to go fight Goliath in the first place. So what does Saul do? Saul wants David dead. Meanwhile, David grows up a little bit and he marries one of Saul's daughters. And you know the story. Saul wanted him to marry the daughter. Saul said, hey, if you go out and you bring back the foreskins of so many people, you can marry her. And, and honestly, David's thinking, or, or Saul's thinking, if David goes and fights these Philistines, he's not going to come back at all. He's going to die out there in war. That's what he really wanted. But he comes back twofold with twice as many foreskins as he was asked to bring. And this continues to infuriate Saul. Saul threw spears at David. He did everything he could to try to kill David. So David leaves his new wife. You remember the story. He goes into a cave. He's hiding from King Saul, and King Saul shows up. And he shows up to use the bathroom in the cave. And all of David's men are looking at him like, this is what we've been praying for. This is our moment. This is the chance to kill King Saul. And David says, wait, 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 wait. That's not how God wants the story to end. We're not going to kill him at all. In fact, we're going to let him go. Up to this point in Scripture, David has been a hero not only to the people of Israel, 
But David has been a hero to us. David has shown us what it means to walk with integrity. David has shown us what it means to be a warrior and fight for your faith. David has shown us what it means to stand in the face of your own Goliaths and to go to battle with them in the name of Jesus. David has done everything possible to point us to the true Messiah, Jesus, who is to come. And eventually, God would make David king of Israel. And throughout the story, he had chance after chance, David did, to draw attention to himself. But instead, each time, David chose humility over pride. David, who was a generous man, who penned majority of the songs that we sing and read about today in this book, was known by you and I today as a guy, a man, after God's own heart. But here, David's going to do something so evil David's going to do something so deceptive that before all of this is over, he's going to conceive a child with a woman who is not his wife. Then he's going to go and he's going to murder her husband. And then he'll attempt to delete the history and cover it all up. That's where we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. Here's what I want you to see, church family. You're here today by design. You're here today because God providentially wanted you here today. I believe with all of my heart that he has something that he wants to say to each and every one of us. But here's what we need to see at the forefront of this text. Sin grows in the hearts of sinners. That's what it does. When you plant the seed of sin in your life and you flirt with it, it will eventually overtake you. Sin will grow in the hearts of sinners. But listen... Not only does this text point us to that, but it also tells us that it also points us to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That even though we might sin, that we can be forgiven of that sin because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross for us. That's where we're headed this morning. So, in context, uh, chapter 10 basically, Israel's at war. And not only is Israel at war, but the rain season comes. That's really around the end of November. This is when the rain season kicks in full throttle for the nation of Israel. And what happens is what they will do is they would pause from war until the rain season is behind them, and then they would resume war. That's usually in the springtime. So that's exactly what's happening. Spring kicks back in. Chapter 11 is where we're at. And because chapter 11's here and the spring is here, Israel is going to go back to war. But this time something's going to be different. This time Israel is going to war and they're going to war without their king. That's where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says this, And the spring of the year, this is the rain season's over, the time when kings go out to battle. Who goes out to battle? Kings go out to battle. David, who is the king, sent Joab, who's the leader of his army, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. The author is showing you two things that you need to see in this text. First, you need to see that David is blessed. David is blessed. Life is going well at this point for David. Israel loves him. The kingdom that God made him king over, it's being established. Remember, he just had one tribe, and now he's the king of the whole land. They are winning battle after battle after battle, and life for Israel at this point is flourishing. So the author wants you to know this, that David in this particular text of scripture is blessed. 
But not only is David blessed, there's a second thing the author wants you to know, and that is secondly that David is bored. David is blessed, but also David is bored. The Bible says here that David sent Joab to battle, and he decided to stay home. Now listen, this is abnormal behavior for a king, especially a king like David. Remember, David by design was built to be a warrior. He was built to be a fighter. When somebody had to go fight the giant Goliath, who was it that stood up and said, let me go fight him? It was David. But now his whole army is in battle, and what does it say that David decides to do? He decides to stay home. He disengages from the mission, and he becomes bored. The author wants you to know at the onset of this text in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that David has two things going on. One, he's blessed, and secondly, he's bored. Why? Because blessing and boredom are two common triggers for sexual sin. You need to know this, church family. Blessing and boredom are two common triggers for any sin. But most importantly here in this text, you're going to find out that it's sexual sin. A guy by the name of Brad Hambrick, he's a counselor, actually has a list of, of, of 19 triggers for, for sexual sin. You can go explore this on the internet. Maybe Jesse or myself can make it available to you. But I want you to go through those because they show you why you give into sexual sin or sin period after 19 different triggers trigger you. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Blessing and boredom are two of those triggers. So the question that's on the table this morning is this. Why is sexual sin enticing in moments of blessing? That doesn't make sense. I mean, in moments of blessing, you would think that everything's going good, we feel blessed, and, and we, would, we would try to refrain from sin. We would steer clear from sin. Here's the answer. Because when life is going well, we tend to forget how dependent we are on God. We tend to forget how dependent we are on God. We start to subconsciously think we can do this on our own. Now, we would never say we don't need God. None of us would ever go to God and just say, hey, by the way, things are going really good in life right now. Why don't you just stand over here? I got this. Like, none of us would ever do that. But subconsciously, we begin to live that way. We begin to live in such a way that God just takes the back seat because we've got this and we know what we're doing with our lives. I remember when my daughter, Reese Jane, she's our third daughter. She's eight years old today. But I remember when she was three years old, she was scared to death to walk down the steps in our home. I mean, she would get out of her bed. If we were downstairs, she'd get out of her bed, and she'd go to the edge of the steps, and she'd sit down, and she would cry her, her head off until somebody came up and grabbed her and picked her up and took her down the steps or grabbed her hand and took her down the steps. And you might be wondering, why do you think she was so scared of going down the steps at the age of three? Well, she has two older siblings. They're two to four years older than she is. So she grew up early watching her siblings go up and down those steps. So at the rightful age of one years old, she thinks that she can go up and down the steps. Three different times, she plummeted from the very top of those steps to the very bottom of those steps. And the second time ended in an ER visit with a mild concussion. So at the age of three, she was terrified of the steps. I, I like to say it like this. There was a moment in her life at the age of one that her confidence grew beyond her capabilities. And many times in the life of us as children of God, our confidence grows beyond our capabilities. We begin to think that we can do and we can uh, withstand things that we simply cannot do and we simply cannot withstand. Here's what I want you to see, church family. 
when we are weak and humble, we cling to the Father. Reese Jane understood, I'm weak, I'm humble, I can't make it down these steps, I'm going to cling to my daddy, and I'm not moving until he comes. But when things are going well, we begin to function independently from the Father, and that's what leads to the fall. This is exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The whole section there is about temptation. He he says, you will be tempted, but here's the good news. God's not going to tempt you beyond what you're capable of of resisting. He's going to give you a way out, is what he's saying. And then he makes this statement. But he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. You think you're big enough to withstand that temptation? (laughs) That's the first step in the wrong direction, buddy. And that's exactly what we do with sexual sin. Oh, we think, you know what, I don't need to tell anybody about this. I don't need counseling. I don't need help. I can do this on my own. I've got it. And before you know it, you've done took the first step in the wrong direction because you think you stand, and that's the first step to your fall. That's exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The author wants us to see that David is blessed, and therefore, because he's blessed, he's now susceptible to sexual sin. But there's a second thing. The second thing is boredom. Why is sexual sin enticing? In moments of boredom. Guys, I'm going to talk to you for just a moment. This is the one you need to pay attention to. This is where we as men mess up most when we're bored. Where does boredom come from? It comes from our hearts not being satisfied or fulfilled in what we're doing. You hear that? We're not content. We're not satisfied. We're not not finding fulfillment in what we're doing. This was Thanksgiving break. I don't know about you. But at my house, we have four kids that are all in school. And it was literally the first day of break at home where our kids come in and they say, well, Mom, Dad, I'm bored. Right? Like they're bored. They want something to do. What are we doing today? Why do we have to have something to do? Why can't we just rest? We're always doing something. This is a great time to rest. Well, I have nothing to do. I'm bored. What are they saying? They're saying what we're doing right now does not fulfill us. What we're doing right now does not satisfy us. So what does this show you about their hearts? Their hearts are on a quest to find fulfillment and satisfaction. We do this spiritually too. When God is not fulfilling us, when God is not satisfying us, we step outside the bounds of God and we go looking in each other to find the fulfillment and satisfaction that we need. We enter a relationship. And before we know it, we're in a sinful relationship simply because we're not finding fulfillment and satisfaction in God. If Jesus is not enough for us, we too will declare with our voices, I'm bored. I have nothing to do. I'm going to go find something that will fulfill me and satisfy me outside of you. And we do this most commonly with sexual sin. So boredom is really a declaration that God's not enough. We start looking for fulfillment outside of him. And we even turn to sexual sins. Listen, the key to resisting any temptation, but also sexual temptation, is to be busy with a higher purpose. It's to be busy with a higher purpose. If David was doing what he was supposed to be doing, he wouldn't have found himself to be bored. But when David disengaged from the mission of God, at that moment he found himself in boredom. Verse 2 is going to tell us that he was lounging on his couch, he got up and he walks on the roof, and that's when he starts to gaze at Bathsheba. I'm going to say something that's pretty bold this morning. Some of you are going to cringe, others of you are going to applaud, okay? It is much easier for you and I to take off our pants when we're lounging on the couch than it is when we're laboring in the field. You hear what I'm saying? 
it's much easier, I want you to read through the lines, for us to take off our pants when we're lounging on a couch than it is when we're laboring on the, in the field. When you and I are engaged in the mission and we're focused on making disciples and we exist for an audience of one and we want that one name to be honored and glorified and we want that, we want that mission to be fulfilled of making disciples of all nations for the glory of God, you know what? It becomes a lot harder to find ourselves just lounging around on the couch. Many of us, we get ourselves in trouble because we're not living our lives for a higher purpose. We're disengaged from the mission that God has called us to. In other words, we're bored. The Bible says it happened, verse 2, late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. <clears throat> and the woman was very beautiful. The Hebrew there literally says very fine. She was a very fine woman. This is a deciding moment for David. In fact, this should remind you of Genesis chapter 3. You know, one thing that we do a lot, we always reference back to th this. I mean, I think about how often in sermons we go back to the beginning. Because really, it shows us a lot about who we are and who God is there. But what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve are standing at the tree that they were told not to eat from. And the enemy comes out of that tree and entices them. He's crafty. He's tricky. He comes out of the tree, and he puts something desirable, something beautiful, something fruitful in front of them. And at that moment, we decide, or they decide, whose voice is louder in Adam and Eve's life. Was it God's, or is it the enemy's? And the same thing is true here. David goes on his porch, and the enemy doesn't come out of a tree, but he certainly puts something desirable, something beautiful, right in front of King David. And at this moment in the story, we're about to find out whose voice is louder. Is it God's or is it the enemy's? So the, the enemy puts in front of David a very fine, might I add, naked woman. And he has a choice to make. It says in verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And by the way, if we knew he was going to make a good decision, we wouldn't have anything else to read. Right? This story wouldn't be in the Bible. He's not going to make a good decision. It says he inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What does the author want you to know? He wants you to know that this is someone's daughter. That this is someone's mother. That this is someone else's wife. That David is inquiring about. This guy that you have held to a high regard for so long through the whole story is now inquiring about a woman that does not belong to him. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now parenthetically it says, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. So the author is telling you that she's bathing herself after her menstrual cycle. So he wants you to know first that she's fertile, and second, that this was a ritual. It's a ritual bath that they would partake in. Listen, there wasn't running water in Israel, okay? You didn't take baths every single day. You were very meticulous and strategic about when you would bathe. But one of their rituals that they would do is when they were finishing with their menstrual cycle, they would clean themselves. 
Sometimes they would do it in the courtyard. Sometimes they would do it in the privacy of their own homes. The homes didn't look like our homes do today, okay? So there were different places. But regardless, what you need to know is that wherever she was bathing, David could see her. And for don't even start trying to put this on Bathsheba. This, this is not her doings at all. David is beginning to objectify her so that he can get out of her what he ultimately wants. She's just doing what she was accustomed to doing, and that is bathing after her menstrual cycle. The Bible says, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The words that people in sin never want to hear. It's okay to tango, but the consequence we want to steer clear from. So as you can imagine, this sends David into a panic. He must do something. She's pregnant, and the law says in Leviticus chapter 12 that both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death if they're found out. Now David was the king, so he was probably going to be an exception to the rule. But she would die, and with her would go their new baby that was in the womb. And let me just add, it is a baby in the womb. So David puts together a plan that will cover up all of his sin. Plan A, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab, Joab sent Uriah to David. All right, so what's going on? Joab's the leader of the army. Uriah is fighting for Joab, namely David. And now David sends a letter saying, hey, I want Uriah to come home. So Uriah came to him. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing. He's just doing small talk. I mean, how's everybody doing out there on the battlefield? How, what's the war look like? He's just trying to start up a conversation. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. What is he doing? He's wanting Uriah to go home. He knows that Uriah's wife has just recently bathed herself. She's ready. And now if you will go home and bathe yourself, maybe y'all both be ready, and y'all will have sex with each other. You'll lay with each other. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So David sends Uriah home. He hopes Uriah will go make love to his wife. Then everyone would assume what? Everyone would assume that she's impregnated not by him because he came home and they were together. So the baby belongs to Uriah, not to David. Things don't go according to plan. Uriah, the Bible says, refuses to go home. In fact, it says that he fell asleep at David's door. Then in verse 10, and they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why don't you go down to your house? I mean, you've been out in the battlefield for far too long. You can go out. You can go to your house tonight. So David questions Uriah. Why don't you go home? Uriah's words are stunning. They're like a marriage vow. Look at verse 11. It says, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I'm not doing this thing. David says, listen, I've been on the battlefield. These dudes are in tents out there. They're camping out. They don't have the good food to eat. They're not able to be with their wives. They're not able to sleep in the luxuries of their own homes and their own beds. And if they can't do that, I'm not going to do that either. So I'll just sleep at your door until you tell me why I'm here. Well, plan A didn't work. Let me say something about that. 
when our plans of covering our sin do not work out the way that we want them to, this is a clear, undeniable sign of God's grace to you. Do you see that? Don't miss that. When you are caught in your sin or when your sin finds you out, that is an undeniable act of God's grace and kindness to you. He is chasing after your heart. He doesn't want your heart to get too far from him. He's trying to reel you back in. That's how good of a God he is. He sees David and he knows the decisions that David is making. And he doesn't just duck his head and flee from David. No, he continues to pursue and chase after David. He wants to call David home. So David goes to plan B in verse 13. And David invited him and he ate in the presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch and the servant of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house again. Plan B was what? Well, let's give Uriah some drinks. Maybe that will loosen him up a little bit and he'll go back home and be with his wife. Instead, Uriah drinks too much. The Bible says he got him drunk and he falls asleep in the front yard of David's palace. Or wherever, maybe on the couch somewhere. The problem is, David doesn't win again. This is another failed attempt. So instead of just doing what was right, he tries another plan. Plan C, this is in verses 14 through 25. David sends Uriah back into battle. And he sends Uriah with a letter. And this letter he's going to give to Joab. He could not open the letter. It was sealed. But he's carrying in his hands his own death sentence. In that letter, Joab is instructed by David to make sure that Uriah is in the part of the war that's going to kill him. Because he wants him dead. One sin after another sin after another sin after another sin after another sin. You see how this happens? This isn't just what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Church, this is what happens in my life and in your life every single day. That if we lose integrity and we don't live for God, before you and I know it, one sin turns into two sins, it turns into three sins, and then we have to tell sins to to make up for sins. You know what I mean? Like one lie to cover the other lie, and it just never ends. It's cancerous. We need to understand that if sin is left to live in our lives, it will suffocate every ounce of spiritual vitality we have out of us. That's why it's important to deal with it. It's important to go before God and to confess it. It's important to have people in your life that you confess it to and deal with the sin so that it doesn't manifest itself in any other way. And the truth of the reality is, church, we all sin. Yes, if you are saved by the grace of God this morning, you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is true that you are now bought by the blood of Jesus. You belong to God. But listen, you are still going to be tempted. You are still in this process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And you too will have temptations in front of you that are designed for that sanctification to help you look more like Jesus. But everything you say yes to, you'll say no to something else. And if you say yes to someone else's wife, you're saying no to your own. That's exactly what David had to find out here. But what does he do? David sweeps it under the rug instead of dealing with it before him and God. Church, it's important for you and I to understand this, that when David walked down on the roof, he wasn't developing a plan that he was going to go and now sleep with some other man's wife. 
He didn't just sit on the couch and say, you know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going to walk out on the roof. I'm going to try to find a lady that I can see, and then I'm going to call her up, and then I'm going to sleep with somebody else's wife. And not only that, but he certainly wasn't developing a plan to get her pregnant and then to try to lie about it and cover it up. And if he can't do that, he's just going to murder the guy. That's not where it started for David. He was bored. He was tired of sitting on the couch doing nothing. And he was sitting on the couch doing nothing because he disengaged from the mission that God had called him to do. So he walked outside to enjoy fresh air. He saw a woman, a beautiful, the Bible says, very fine, naked woman. And an innocent gaze became lust in his heart. And it was at that moment that he should have ran back inside, closed the balcony door, pulled the curtains, and got on his face before God. But he didn't. Instead, he indulged in his sin and he called the woman up. Verse 26 says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. David sweeps it all under the rug. He takes Bathsheba as his wife. Now what's everyone going to think? Well, they just got pregnant on their honeymoon. Man, what a plan. You have to think through that pretty deeply to come up with that. So life can now return to normalcy. Everything is good. David's reputation is saved, not tarnished. Bathsheba's now his wife. She can have the child. Everything is good. But listen, this chapter ends with these chilling words. It says this, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing means everything, the adultery, the lies, the murder. It's a collective singular, which means all that is sinful, everything that David had done, all this mess is one large disobedient act. Now listen, what's important is it doesn't matter if this was premeditated or not. It's sinful. It was all displeasing to the Lord. Isn't it interesting that chapter 11 is the turning point of David's life? Not sure if you know his story, but his family begins to fall apart. His newborn son actually dies. Later, his firstborn son would die. And then another son would lead a rebellion against him. His whole family begins to fall apart as a result of this particular sin. One key to overcoming sexual sin that you and I need to know this morning is this. Listen to it. You need to know this. It's not about sinning less. It's about loving God more. And, and that's the problem with us, is we don't love God enough that he alone is enough. So when he's not satisfying and he's not fulfilling, we go outside of him to find something that's satisfying and fulfilling. We go to the created rather than the creator. So there's two things I think we need to know from this passage. This is how we're going to sum it up. Two things we need to know from this passage. One is unconfessed sin will destroy you. Church has been so clear in this passage of scripture. Unconfessed sin will destroy you. Sin begins like a small seed planted in your heart and it grows larger and larger and larger the more you flirt with it. The more you let it sit there and cultivate it, the larger it becomes. I want you to think about what small sin might exist in your life today that if it goes undealt with, it might become a lot larger of a sin. Maybe you've rationalized your relationship with a friend by saying, well, it was just one innocent hug. 
and you know what's going on in your heart, and if that is not dealt with, that hug's gonna turn into something much worse. It was just one social media conversation. They were funny, I was funny, we engaged in it. Is there anything wrong with a hug? Is there anything wrong with a social media conversation? Absolutely not. But something's wrong with our hearts when we start thinking things that are more than what should be thought of. I was just flipping through some pictures, being nosy, and before you knew it, you've committed adultery, emotionally, physically, maybe psychologically. I can hear someone now, I would never do that. That's not me. I would never do that. First, Jeremiah reminds you that your heart is deceitfully wicked, like it will deceive you. Second, don't you remember what Paul has already said? That's the first step in the wrong direction. Take heed lest he fall. The truth is, is some of us, we enjoy our temptation way too much. We just enjoy temptation way too much. Some of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. Highly recommend reading that book. It's about stewardship and phenomenal resource for you to read. But he also wrote another book called The Purity Principle. And in The Purity Principle, he gives a list of like, several different consequences to sins if he were to have committed them. So one of my mentors actually challenged us about eight years ago to write out a list of consequences that we as pastors or a pastor's wife would face if we fell prey to adultery. This is a great practice, by the way, and I want you to hear my list. I actually shared it again with Kayla. She's seen this eight years ago. She's seen it again this week, and I said, hey, maybe we need to revisit this, doctor this up, change it, whatever it is, but now's a good time to remind ourselves what what would happen if, if Trey or if Kayla committed adultery. This is our list. Number one, I would grieve the heart of God who gave so much to save me. I would like to say that that's enough. Just the thought that I would grieve the heart of God who gave so much to redeem me. Secondly, I would bring unspeakable embarrassment and shame and grief on my wife, Kayla. Third, I would forfeit her respect and trust and most likely lose my entire relationship with my wife. Fourth, I would seriously sabotage the confidence of my children, Rylan, Reagan, Reese, and River, and they would never understand why I chose a cheap thrill over Kayla and them. Fifth, I would shame my own father and mother, my in-laws, many of my friends. Six, I would disgrace you, the church family that I love. Seventh, I would provide ammunition for the skeptics in our area who already mock God. And don't trust God nor pastors. Just be giving them extra ammunition. Eight. I would have to stand before God, the true judge, and give account for why I chose to do this after all the blessings that he has put in my life. 
9. I would follow in the footsteps of men I know who have defamed the glory of God and forfeited their ministries. And man, when you start thinking of it, Kayla and I will tell you, there are a lot of them. A lot. Almost every instrumental guy that God used to mold and to shape me and my upbringing as a child of God has fallen prey to sexual sin. It's harder to think of the ones who haven't. I don't want to be another statistic. Number 10, I would forever have to live with the reality of knowing what I've done. Why do I share that list with you? I share that list because sometimes that list helps keep things in proper perspective for me. And maybe you need a list of your own. If my wife finds out that I'm looking at this at night, these are the things I will lose. If my husband finds out that these are the conversations I'm having with another man, this is what this will cost me. And start writing out your list, and before you know it, you'll start to think, man, is it really worth all of that? See, the only way we'll ever experience the fullness of God is by recognizing first how far we fall from the heart of God. Sin will destroy us if it's not dealt with. You'll you'll only really be free from the sin to the point to the point that the pain that you lose is greater than the thrill that you'll receive. We've got to know what we'll lose if we continue to engage in this cheap thrill. Secondly, not only do I want you to see that your sin will destroy you, but secondly and finally this morning, God's grace will save you. God's grace saves you. Don't miss this unbelievable, unfathomable grace of God in this text. Like This is where I want you to leave today, okay? This is what I need you to see on your way out the door. This text might be, for many of us, our hard pill to swallow. I get that. Because for a lot of us, it's hitting us dead square between the eyes. It throws a painful reality of our sin in our faces. But what you need to cling to this morning is that where sin abounds, finish it, grace abounds much more. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. God is the source of all grace, and he is not in short supply. That doesn't give you the freedom to go sin freely. That's not what Jesus tells us in Ephesians there. Instead, this calls us to want to live in a way that honors him and loves him above all else. Yes, the child in the womb would eventually die. But God was faithful in providing another child to David and Bathsheba. Do you know who that child was? It was Solomon, and through the line of Solomon would come who? Jesus. Isn't it amazing how the grace of God works? Did David or Bathsheba deserve that? Absolutely not. But God has a way of using even the grossest of infractions of the law to achieve his purposes. See, in almost every story that we've encountered through First and Second Samuel, David has been a picture of Christ to us. You remember? He was like Jesus when he was a shepherd in the field. He was like Jesus when he was fighting the giant Goliath. He was like Jesus when he exercised forgiveness to King Saul, even when he could have killed King Saul. But something is dynamically different him. Here, here. listen, David isn't like Jesus at all. Who's like Jesus? Uriah. Uriah is a picture of Jesus to us. Uriah is an innocent hero who dies in absolute loyalty to his king. He chose not to enjoy pleasure at the expense of his army. He carried his own death sentence into battle. And he is faithful to the end. And because of that, 
He dies for David's sin against him. Isn't that exactly what Jesus has done? Jesus is the innocent one who died in absolute loyalty to us. He didn't indulge in his own pleasure at the expense of us. Instead, he put our needs above his own, Philippians 2. And he carried his own death sentence into the world, and he even carried it all the way to the cross. Jesus was faithful to the end because he died for our sins against him. But there's one stark difference between Jesus and Uriah. See, Uriah wasn't aware of the crime committed against him when he died. But Jesus was. And he died anyway. Church, that's called grace. Jesus saw every gross infraction of the law that you would commit against him. And he went to the cross and he paid for it anyway. So whatever it is that plagues you this morning, whatever it is that pains you this morning, maybe you are already thinking through some sexual sin that you've been flirting with and you've not dealt with. It is time, church family, to go to God with open hands and to seek his face and forgiveness and say, Lord, I need a taste of the goodness and the grace that you've offered David. I need to taste it for myself. But listen, you need to know that you cannot resist the temptation of sexual sin on your own. You need help. Someone told me a long time ago, Trey, it's better to avoid the things you don't have the strength to resist. And that is so true. Ma'am, sir, if you don't have the strength to resist temptation, when you go on your business trips alone, quit going on your business trips alone. Ma'am, sir, if you don't have the strength to avoid the temptation when you stay up late at night and your wife's in bed or your, your, your spouse is in bed, quit staying up late at night and go to bed. Like, do whatever it takes to see that you are set free in the freedom that Christ promises from the sin that continues to plague you.